Now, before you even open up your Bible this morning, I want you each to take out a pen and something to write on, or a pencil. If you don't have that, take out your phone and open up your notes app. Some way to document something. I'm going to ask a question in just a second, and I want you to actually write down your answers to this question. But as you're taking that out, you can open your Bibles to the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 13 to 31, which is where we'll be this morning. Si habla español, abran sus Biblias al Evangelio según Marcos, capítulo 10, versículos 13 a 31. Now, you've got your pen, you've got your paper, something to write with. Here's the question. Why don't you actually write down your honest answer, what first comes to mind right now? What must you do to inherit eternal life? What must you do to inherit eternal life? Or in other words, how can you be saved. What must you do to be saved? I'm actually going to let that sit for a second and let you write and think about that. Now, I want you to save that answer. Don't let it go anywhere. And if you need to take some extra time, that's perfectly fine. Now, this morning with this text, we're actually not going to read the whole thing. We're going to read one and a half verses, and then we're going to jump right into it. So, with your finger starting on chapter 10, verse 13, go all the way down to chapter 10, verse 26. And we're going to read verses 26 and the first part of verse 27. Read along with me. And they, being the disciples, were exceedingly astonished. And they said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come upon a text, just like any text in your word, that carries such magnitude, I pray that you would Put us each in a posture of being ready and willing and needy to receive. To receive your word. To receive your grace through your word by the finished work of Jesus Christ. Would you convict us where sin or pride exists? Would you fill our hearts with hope where despair exists? Would you confront our self-sufficiency or our self-righteousness 
or, or any, any delusion that salvation comes from anything other than what you, where you say it comes from in your word this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, goodness gracious, this passage seems to be on the surface about children and the rich young ruler. And if you know the Bible, you've heard the story of the rich young ruler. But I believe what the Lord has for us this morning is to to learn either for the first time or to be reminded, deeply reminded, of what theologians have called the doctrine of salvation. The Bible's teaching on what it means to be saved. So we're going to work our way through this text, reading it as we go. But the outline for this morning is very, very simple. Two points. The first point is the answer. The answer to the question that I first asked. What must you do to inherit eternal life? How, how can anyone be saved? First point is the answer. The second point is a living illustration of the answer. It's two points. The answer and a living illustration of the answer. Read verses 13 through 14 with me as we jump into this first point. Mark writes, And they, meaning parents, people, people in Judea, were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. The day, the day was ordinary. Probably the most ordinary day that there has been in weeks. There are no Pharisees to confront him or cause controversy. There, there are no demons to be exercised. There are no sick to be healed. There are no dead to be raised. There are no crowds apparently following him in mass. Just a group of parents bringing their kids to him. One would expect nothing out of the ordinary. But <laughs> the disciples are there. <laughs> the disciples are there to turn what is otherwise ordinary into something other than that. As this group of parents brought their children to Jesus, they rebuked them. What? What? If they had remembered the lesson from chapter 9, verses 35 through 37, when Jesus took a child in his arms and said, whoever receives such a one as this receives me, they would have not interfered. But, but the disciples, these were, these guys, they really were a rough bunch. They, they were not particularly warm and friendly. They assumed the roles of, of Jesus' bodyguards and bouncers, the, the self-appointed intermediaries to, to keep people from getting to Jesus whom they thought had no business being around Jesus. They, they had a strong ministry of forbidding. They were good at forbidding, of looking at people and saying, hey, get out of here, you, get, get out of here. But why would they forbid children. Isn't, isn't that curious? 
See, when you're reading the Bible, you have to be careful not to import modern uh, perceptions into how you read the Bible. Because the modern reader comes from a context where parents make their children the stars of their Instagram accounts, where, where there is a birthday party that everybody is invited to for every age of every one of their children. They, we live in an age where, where children are a massive audience for, for tons of huge corporations to market to, their parents really, and, and capitalize on. Children Children are viewed very differently today than they were in the ancient world. In the ancient world, children were simply not important. There are no bones about this. Childhood was really an unfortunate period of life that one had to go through in order to get to the significance of adulthood. Young children had zero status or importance. And the disciples were upset that these mongrels would impose on the master's time. Look at verse 14. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant. This word means aroused anger. Anger that is expressed and not simply brooded upon. This is the only time, the only time in Mark where Jesus responds to the disciples with, with anything other than really patience. It's the only time that he responds with indignance. And in fact, it's the only time that this word is used for Jesus in Mark with anybody. And you say, wait, wait, wait. I, I would think that this kind of response would be reserved for the Pharisees. Sinclair Ferguson, Sinclair Ferguson answers, that is exactly why Jesus was so indignant. Because the disciples misrepresented the character of God and distorted his grace just like the Pharisees did. By their actions, they were saying, this is what Jesus is like. He has no time for you or your children. Oh, that's a distortion of who Jesus is. And Jesus says, don't you dare. Don't you dare misrepresent me like that. So instead, Jesus says in, verse, in the second half of verse 14, he says, let the little children rather come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Oh boy, oh boy. What does Jesus mean by this? Does he mean that all children are naturally, naturally within the kingdom of God? All children naturally belong to the kingdom? No, no. The Bible teaches that all are naturally children of wrath because of our sin. But it can also be popular to assume, to assume that Jesus is drawing attention to the virtues of childhood. To the virtues of children, namely purity and childlike innocence and, and humility and playfulness and, 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 and joy. Virtues like their, their, their trusting nature. 
But listen, on one hand, if that's what Jesus is saying, he's saying that it is by these, imitating these virtues that one enters into the kingdom of God, virtues that the disciples certainly did not have, and they're virtues that I certainly don't have, and you don't have, at least with perfect consistency. More than that, though, more than that, this, this portrayal of children is in no way in alignment with the ancient view of children. Nobody heard these words from Jesus and, and assumed that. This does not align with the, the biblical view of children. Furthermore, this tendency to view children as trusting and humble and innocent and pure is normally not found among parents of small children. <laughs> you, you, you ask parents of small children who love their children dearly, dearly, and would give their lives for them. You ask parents of small children if they see the doctrine of sin being played out in their children every day, and they will give you a resounding yes. If, if they see in their children selfishness and complaining and, 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 and self-exaltation of, of, of oneself and wanting to be better than all their other friends and, and, and poor decision-making and lack of wisdom, and it just goes on and on and on. Children are, are sinners just like adults. So what is Jesus drawing attention to then in children? He's drawing attention to their neediness. He's drawing attention to their neediness. Scholar James Edwards says, to receive the kingdom of God as a child is to receive it as one who has no credits, no clout, and no claim. Listen, our proud impulse in every endeavor of life is to earn, to achieve, to contribute to and look back and see and say what look what I did to deserve. Oh, that is the proud impulse of every person in all of history. But children earned nothing. In the eyes of the ancient world, children contributed nothing. Author Peter Bolt says that as the least in society, anything children have comes through receiving it. Anything children have comes through receiving it. So Jesus is saying, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like one who can only have anything by receiving it, shall not enter it. The old Puritan Thomas Boston said, the gospel teaches us to come with empty hands to the market of grace. The gospel teaches us to come with empty hands to the market of grace. 
And verse 16 gives us a picture of how Jesus, who is the very embodiment of the kingdom of God, he is the kingdom of God in human flesh. He is the reign of God represented in person. He shows us in verse 16 how how he, as the embodiment of the kingdom of God, responds to those who, who bring nothing but their need. Look at verse 16. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. Parents, verse 13, brought their children just so that he would touch them, but, but no, he gathered them in and he put them in his arms and he blessed them. God, this is intentional language by Mark. Mark is telling us something in this. Preacher C.J. Preacher Mahaney says that you can add children now to the list of unclean, to the list of sinners, lepers, foreigners, women that he loved and laid hands on and prayed for and blessed. All of these people that in the ancient world were, were socially either outcast or seen as the least among everyone else. It was those that he brought to himself precisely because they were the people who most sensed their need. They were those who said, of course my hands are empty. I have earned nothing in the eyes of the world. Friend, the only thing that you and I can bring that's of any value to God whatsoever is our need. That is the most valuable thing that you have in your life. You ever think about that? The most valuable thing that you have before God is your need. That's it. And this neediness is both how you enter the kingdom and what characterizes life within the kingdom. So, let me ask you this, Christian brother or sister, if, if you are a Christian, let me ask you this. How do you view your Christian life? Is it primarily through the lens of need? Or is it primarily a life of service and obedience? Don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. Serving and obeying should characterize a Christian's life. Absolutely, no doubt. But serving and obeying are the fruit and effect of receiving grace. They, they do not earn grace. They do not contribute to, to receiving grace. They, they, do not, they do not deserve grace. They are the fruit and effect of having received grace grace. If you view your Christian life primarily through the lens of service and obedience, that very well may reflect a heart that that wants to earn, to achieve, to contribute, to contribute to the work of Christ that is complete, to deserve. Michael Horton says that the gospel is not about what we have done or what we are called to do, but the announcement of God's saving work in Jesus Christ. 
So first and foremost, we are recipients before God. We cannot give him anything that he needs. We cannot give him anything that he needs. Before God, we are always receivers of his gifts. And any service and obedience in our life is a response to what we have received in gratitude and in joy. So, do you find yourself reluctant to receive? Reluctant to express your need? Do you find yourself reluctant to ask from God before you try to contribute to God? Ask yourself these questions. These are worthwhile questions questions that that dig deep into the soil of our hearts. Great conversation fodder. Great, great fodder for your morning devotion or your time in prayer to just go before the Lord and ask Him that. Am I reluctant to posture myself continually in need of God? Do you serve and obey to contribute, to earn or to achieve? Or do you serve and obey because you are gratefully aware of the grace that you have undeservingly received? The third verse of the old hymn, Rock of Ages, if you know it, it it expresses what Jesus is saying here so brilliantly. The author of the hymn says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling, naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. If you don't wash me, I have no hope. So how does one enter the kingdom of God? Like a needy child with empty hands. That's the answer. But, but, that's the answer by by an example, okay? But Jesus wants, to, wants us to really grasp this. He wants to make it very clear to us. So Mark follows this instance with immediately a living illustration of what he's saying here. He tethers this out. He makes sure that we fully understand what's going on, that the disciples fully understand what he's saying, which brings us to the second point. Second point, a living illustration of the answer. As Jesus was about to set back out on his journey, remember, he's now going to Jerusalem. Chapters 10 through 15, he is marching toward Jerusalem. A man ran up and knelt before him. Now, in their parallel accounts, Matthew describes this this man as a young man, and Luke describes him as a ruler. Mark just says he's a man, but later we do find out that he is rich, which is where we get the name for this story that it's typically associated by, which is the rich young ruler. Now I'm guessing, (laughs) I'm guessing that this guy was a complete surprise to the disciples, to Jesus' self-appointed bodyguards and bouncers who were always on the lookout for, for somebody who, who, who might cross into the inner circle that they could forbid from entering. How did this guy get past them? 
We got past him because he literally ran. He ran straight through them and knelt before Jesus. And note, this is not a culture where people jogged for leisure. There was not the, the Judean running club. This was, this, was, this was the desert. So the climate, think, think Phoenix in the middle of summer. And furthermore, pe- people exercised not by going out and doing exercises. They, they worked. Work was exercise. So this guy had no reason to run except that he was eager. He wanted to become a disciple. He goes up to Jesus, and not only is he eager, he is respectful. He kneels. There is sincerity in this man. And he looks at him and he says, he says, good teacher. Further conveying his respect, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Listen, this man must have been a welcome relief to Jesus. After after the controversy of the Pharisees in chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, and then the misrepresentation by the disciples immediately thereafter, finally, as, as James Edwards says, finally, somebody comes to Jesus and asks him the essential question. The question, which will, which will describe the essence of Jesus' ministry? There's so much to commend about this guy. Don't read this wrong. Don't, don't read this as though he's, he's some self-serving, uh, aware of his self-righteousness hypocrite. No, no, this guy is sincere. But there is something amiss with his question. He asks, look down at the text. He asks, what, what must I do? What must I do? He's not approaching Jesus as a needy child. Jesus responds, verse 18, he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. It almost seems, doesn't it, like he's not answering the question. Like finally Jesus has asked the question that, that we've been waiting for somebody to ask, and then it looks like he just diverts it and doesn't answer it. No, he's answering it. It's, 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 it's as if he's saying, do you have any idea what you just said? <laughs> do you understand what you just said? You, do you realize the implications of ascribing to me what can and should only be ascribed to God alone? Rabbis in the ancient world, they, they, would, they would take all kinds of different titles happily, but none of them would tolerate being called good because they knew They knew that risked blasphemy. They knew only God was good. So Jesus is saying, why do you call me good? One, you speak better than you know, young man. Two, since this man is asking what he should do to inherit eternal life, which means that he understood behavior to be the ultimate requirement of, of God, Jesus effectively says in verse 19, where he says, you know the commandments, he says, okay, let's see if you are good. Let's see, you're asking what you've got to do to inherit eternal life, and you've just called me good, let's see if you're good. And so Jesus says, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. He lists commandments five through nine. 
very interesting, the commandments that are associated with external behavior. Commandments one through four have to do with honoring and loving God. So he lists the commandments relating to external behavior, but he, li- he leaves one off, the 10th commandment. You shall not covet. He leaves that off, but just for a moment. He doesn't leave it off purposely. Jesus is he's doing something. He, he's, he's, he's making a point. And the man responds in verse 20. He says, well, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. All these I have kept from my youth. And he is sincere. There, we have no reason to believe that he's lying. Some commentators will say, well, he's, he's probably just d- deluded. No, we have no reason to believe that this guy, he may be one of the most morally, outwardly morally upright people in all of Judean society. Now imagine the moment. Look at verse 20. Verse 21. And Jesus looking at him, loved him. You know, Mark wrote his gospel not as an eyewitness. He received reports from other disciples and apostles. And so it might have been Peter who was relaying this story to him, and Peter probably said, you should have seen it. The man said that, and Jesus looked at him, and you could see the love in his gaze. Jesus knew this man's heart. He knew what was about to happen, and yet he loved him. And what he said next came from his love for him. And so Jesus says, you lack one thing. Sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. He had outward obedience to the law. But Jesus says you lack one thing. George Whitfield, an old dead preacher, suffice it to say, an old dead preacher, He used to speak not only of the evil of our sin, but of the evil of our righteousness. What did he mean by that? He meant external obedience that lacks a needy heart. That's what Jesus is is identifying here. He's identifying in the man the the, the evil of his own righteousness. That his righteousness counted for, for, for nothing because There was one thing he lacked. What was it that this rich young ruler lacked? He lacked a childlike need for God. He lacked a need for the one who alone is good and holy. He came to Jesus saying, I think I've got it all. Jesus, can you you confirm to me that I have enough to get in? And Jesus says, no. Despite what you think you have, you lack the most important thing. And that one thing is everything. I mean, look at the big picture here. In exchange for all the man's stuff, Jesus offers 
himself and all the treasures of the kingdom of God. And yet, verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away, sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Sinclair Ferguson says that this could very well, very well be the saddest verse in the Bible. This is the only person in any of the gospel accounts who is personally called to discipleship by Jesus who walks away and who refuses. Being held out the riches of the kingdom of God and says, no. His life was still centered on himself rather than, than the kingdom of God. There, there was a God in his life that he prized more than the one true God. For he had great possessions. That was his God. He was an idolater. And between the self-sufficiency that his riches afforded him and the self-righteousness of his own works, he had no sense of need for God. That's what's going down here. That's what's happening he had a sense of need for self, and he thought that he had fulfilled that need. And then Jesus pulled the curtain back and he says, no. You like everything. And Jesus allows this tragic living illustration to walk away. But then he turns to his disciples, he turns his attention back to the disciples. Why? Because between the children and the rich young ruler, you know they're, they're still a little clueless. And we find in a moment that they're actually a little bit terrified about what's going on because this, this has completely reshaped their perceptions. And so he clarifies what's going on. And he says, look at verse 23, the, the second part of verse 23. He says to them, he says, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. <laughs> and Mark says, they were amazed! And amazed is probably better interpreted, what? And so Jesus repeats himself in verse 24. Children, how difficult. Notice he doesn't say for a rich person. He just says, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God, period. But he then continues. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. There is a potential for misunderstanding here. Jesus is not teaching that it is a sin to be rich. He's warning all those who trust in riches because riches lessen a sense of need. What wealth does tend to create a sense of self-sufficiency. I've got all things covered. I'm okay. I don't need you, God. He's warning against that. Also, he's speaking about this guy in particular. He's not making blanket statements about all of humanity regarding wealth. He's also not, he's also not advocating poverty or teaching that all who are poor are good. Having said that, I don't want to soften the effect of these verses. 
I don't want to soften the effect of these verses, of the warning of the unique temptation that wealth presents to our hearts. I don't want to soften the effect of what Jesus is saying about the kingdom of God because Jesus has said in verses 23 and 24 that entrance into the kingdom of God is very difficult, right? And then in verse 25, he ratchets it up with this violent contrast between the largest animal in the entire region, a camel, and the smallest opening that anyone could think of, the eye of a needle. The point? Jesus has just escalated it from difficult to impossible. He's just escalated entrance into the kingdom of God from difficult to impossible. And, and, and yet, there, there are all kinds of theories about what's really meant by the camel and the, and the eye of a needle. Probably one of the more popular ones is that camel is better interpreted rope. I don't know how that's arrived at, but still, I don't know how to fit a rope through the eye of a needle. That makes it no better. The point is that it's impossible. And as a result, the disciples have gone from amazed in verse 24. Now look at verse 26. They they are utterly astonished. And so Peter, speaking for the group, and and you just hear hear the tone in this verse. Peter, speaking for for the group, he says, and who can be saved? Who? Who can be saved? In, in Jewish culture, wealth was typically seen as a sign of God's blessing. So e- even though the disciples may have resented the wealthy, they also knew along with their Jewish compatriots that if this guy was wealthy, it, it must mean that he was blessed by God. Furthermore, he's one of the most morally upstanding people in society. And so the guys are going, Jesus, help, help us out here. If this guy can't get in, how will any of us get in? The, you, you have just crushed our dreams. What are you saying, Jesus? How can any of us be saved This, this at last is the right question. The question, the question and the way it's asked, it reveals the utter futility of human contributions. See, this, this text isn't about children ultimately. It's not about rich people. It's not about having wealth and whether you should have wealth or, or, or you shouldn't. Or it's, it's not about how you should treat the poor. That's not what this is about. It's not about camels and ropes and eyes of needles. It's about this question in verse 26. To Jesus, who can be saved? Because it looks like nobody can. Verse 27 is the key to this whole passage. And verse 27 has been staring at me all week long. It's the, it's the key to your understanding of salvation. And that is no overstatement. Jesus says in response to the question, who then can be saved? With man, it is impossible. 
not improbable, not difficult. It's impossible. How do you inherit eternal life? It's impossible. How do you get into the kingdom of God? It's impossible. What must you do to be saved? You can't. It's impossible. There is no entering or inheriting eternal life because no one is good but God alone. But don't despair. But don't despair. Because with man, it is impossible. But not with God. Don't just skim over that verse. Don't say, well, yeah, of course, he's God. He can do what's impossible. He doesn't have to. What we could never do for ourselves, God most graciously and kindly does for us. And how does God do the impossible? We'll look back at verse 17. Mark hints at how God does the impossible by reminding us that Jesus is on a journey. And as he was setting out on his journey, he's going on a journey to where? To Jerusalem. To do what? Well, in next week's passage, Jesus describes in graphic detail what he was going to Jerusalem to do. Actually, we're going we're gonna to skip ahead and we're going to read verses 33 and 34. Read these with me. Verse 33, just a couple verses ahead of the end of our passage today. Jesus says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. How does God do what is impossible for man to do? The Father sent his Son to the cross to be our substitute to carry all of our ungoodness and to pay for it to bear the wrath of God for our sin to stand in our place to address our deepest need which is forgiveness from a God we have offended and why would he do this because he is good because he is good. Behold the goodness of God in verse 27. With man it is impossible, but with God it is not. So how do you inherit eternal life? We're going to go all the way back to the very beginning. Let's ask this question now. Bring up what you wrote. How do you inherit eternal life? How is anyone saved not by doing or contributing or earning or deserving or buying anything and you can write this down but by coming to God with the empty hands of a child and expressing our need for him to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. That is how you inherit eternal life. 
coming to God with the empty hands of a child and expressing your need for him to do for you what you could never do for yourself. What I've just described is the biblical portrayal of faith. If you ever asked, what is faith? That is faith. That is faith. Coming to God with the empty hands of faith. How does that compare with what you wrote down earlier? If it's different, then that's probably a good thing because the Lord is teaching you. The Lord is helping us to understand the nature of our salvation, the nature of our need for Him. Now, I've got to move quickly here, but we cannot, we cannot skip over these last few verses. They are critical. Look at verse 28. Verse 28. Peter began to say, him, say to him, well, we've left everything and followed you. Peter comes to Jesus and, and he says, well, listen to Jesus, if, if with man it's impossible to be saved, then what value do our sacrifices have? Do, do they mean anything? Which is a good question, right? If, if nothing that we do, none of our obedience, none of our sacrifices contributes to our entrance into the kingdom of God, then what, what worth is it? He says, do they even matter? Jesus makes it clear that they do matter. And get this, your, your sacrifices will not ultimately amount to loss. That's another one to, to write down. Your sacrifices will not ultimately amount to loss. Look at verses 29 through 31. Jesus said in response to Peter, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. The many who are first will be last and the last first. Friends, any sacrifice you make for Jesus and the gospel will be rewarded. It will be rewarded a hundredfold while you enjoy the true riches of eternal life with him and even if you are the last in this life, you will be first in riches in eternal life. You are his beloved. But I want you to notice this. Don't just read this as eternal riches. Look at this. You cannot miss this. Your reward won't only be in the life to come. Look at verse 30. <laughs> Who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Have you ever noticed that? If you're familiar with this passage, have you ever noticed that? Now in this time, he's talking primarily about now in this time. He's not talking primarily about eternal life. He's talking about now. Now in this time, you will have the reward of a home and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, albeit with persecution. This isn't utopia. What is he talking about? What is he talking about? He's talking about the church. He's talking about the church. Oh boy, oh boy, if the church and this right here, this small ragdag group of people has become familiar to you, 
and ho-hum and humdrums, well, whatever, just another group of people I hang out with. When Jesus is talking about you will receive a hundredfold in this time, he's talking about the people around you. Your experience of the church, of the body of Christ, is the beginning of your experience of eternity. Oh, that, that's not hype. That's truth. Your home in the church, your community in the church, your family in the church is real. And it is a gift of God. It is true riches. Whatever you've sacrificed, oh, God is providing for you in the church. Just yesterday, to, to, to close, and I know I'm going long, but boy, oh boy, what a, what a passage this is. But just yesterday, Kelsey and I were texting with, with an old friend named Jennifer Williams. Some of you know who she is. She's a former member of this church. She's hoping to move back here in May to become a member of this church once again. She was expressing her, her longing to be with you, to be a member of this church. But right now, she's in Fayetteville, Arkansas, caring for her mother, who's very, very sick. And I didn't know this until yesterday. And her sister is also very, very sick. And it's looking dire for, for both of them. But while she's in Fayetteville, there's a Sovereign Grace Church that's been caring for her. And the senior pastor there is named Matt. And Jennifer was like, I, I, I heard from Matt that, that he saw Jeff just, just last week. Oh, man. What a, what a wonderful reunion that must have been. And she said, the church here has been such a blessing to me. And as she prepares for the move back to California, it's Cross of Grace Santa Ana that she's most excited about in her move back to California. But as she told us about the difficulty of what she's dealing with right now, the sacrifices she's having to make, here's what she said. <laughs> she said, it's a hot mess up in here. <laughs> But the Lord is faithful. I'm so blessed by the body of Christ in the church. Jennifer's been a wonderful example to me over the years of someone who has daily held out the empty hands of faith. And she's sacrificed much. But she knows exactly what she's getting in return. And so she presses forward with those empty hands of faith day by day. Friends, may that reflect us. May our lives be characterized by our unyielding need for God and an awareness of what we get our hands filled with when we extend them empty. Fernando and Rebecca, you can come up and prepare to lead us in the closing song, but as we do, I want to read the first verse of this closing song so you can sing it as loudly as you possibly can. It says, Father, I can, I tend to, I can come to you and boast of deeds that I've done. In my pride, I strive to earn the favor that Christ has already won, but he alone pleads my acceptance all of my works aside. So I come with empty hands and I cling to Christ. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, oh Lord, 
Help us to receive the message of your gospel, to receive it with the empty hands of faith and to rejoice in what you do plentifully supply into our empty hands. We thank you for your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.